I'm Lisa Stone, and you're listening to Parenting Aces. Welcome to season nine of the Parenting Aces podcast. Week, I don't know what now, of the COVID-19 stay-at-home order for us here in California. It seems like it's been months. I think it's been maybe a month or a little more than a month since we've been here at home, but I hope that all of you are continuing to stay well, stay healthy. Those you love are staying healthy and well, and most importantly, that you're staying home and helping to put an end to this craziness so we can all get back out on the tennis court sooner rather than later. I know we're all itching to do that. In this week's podcast, I am speaking with Cecil Harris, and we kind of take a little bit different turn than we're usually doing on Parenting Aces, but Cecil is a journalist. He's based in New York, the epicenter of the COVID-19 pandemic right now here in the States. And Cecil, I think Cecil and I met in person at the U.S. Open a couple years ago. Neither of us can remember exactly if we met, but as we were talking, we started telling stories and realizing that we probably did come in contact with each other in New York um, during the Open. But in any event, Cecil has recently published a new book called Different Strokes, Serena, Venus, and the Unfinished Black Tennis Revolution. And in this episode, Cecil shares with us some really interesting and important history of our sport and the racial component of our sport and the impact that players like Althea Gibson and uh, Arthur Ashe and James Blake and Serena and Venus, of course, uh, Donald Young have had on the sport of tennis here in the U.S. and globally. And he shares with us some really fascinating history and stories and interviews that he's had with players over the years in preparation for writing this new book. And Cecil's written articles in the New York Times, the New York Daily News, the New York Post, Newsday, USA Today. He is an accomplished journalist. And it was really interesting and thrilling to get to chat with him. And I hope you guys find it as interesting and as thrilling as I did. So for now, here's Cecil Harris. Welcome to the Parenting Aces podcast, Cecil Harris. I'm so happy to have you. Thank you for inviting me, Lisa. I appreciate it. So you are a sports writer, and I don't typically have sports writers on the podcast, though I have interviewed some of your cohorts over the years. (laughs) Why are we having this conversation right now in the midst of all the craziness going on in our world? Well, I think it's a really good opportunity to look at the cultural impact of Serena and Venus Williams. Um, I consider that story to be the most successful family project in sports history. And I think it ties in well with you know parenting aces because that was a family project, the dream that Richard Williams and Oracine Price had for their two youngest daughters and for them to become world number one and world number two and really revolutionized their sport, doesn't get enough credit. And I wrote a tennis book a decade ago and really wanted to update it because Serena went from being a great player and somewhat of an underachiever when the previous book came out in 2007 to being a true sports icon in 2020. And I wanted to look at that as well as the business of tennis, why some promising players like a Scoville Jenkins, for example, who showed a lot of promise when he came out of Atlanta more than a decade ago, why he lasted just seven years on the tour. I mean, that's an accomplishment, but he came up at around the same time as Novak Djokovic. They were comparable in terms of their world singles rankings as juniors, but why did Novak become this all-time great, whereas Scoville did not quite reach that level. I get into issues like that in the book. And I also delve into the history of blacks in tennis, going back to Althea Gibson breaking the barrier and becoming the first black major tennis champion in the 1950s. But she's not nearly as widely 
known as Arthur Ashe, who came a decade later. And even before Althea Gibson, there was um, a Black-led American Tennis Association. It goes back to 1916. It still exists. But why is that not being used as, say, a feeder uh, for developing black umpires, tournament directors, tournament referees, areas where blacks are still sorely underrepresented in the sport? So I, I delve into all those issues. And I think at a time when there are no tennis tournaments being played, that we could talk about the history of the sport and the impact of you know, the most successful sibling act in any sport in history and what that has meant to tennis. I love it. Before we started recording, you were sharing with me an experience you had with Althea Gibson at the U.S. Open. Would you mind sharing that with our listeners? I'm happy to tell you about it. In the early 1990s, I'm, I'm a young sports writer, excited to be covering the, the U.S. Open. And at that time, Louis Armstrong Stadium was the main court, and they had a champions section where past champions could sit together. Althea Gibson happened to be sitting next to a Virginia Wade watching a match. And I knew what Althea looked like because briefly she was the sports commissioner of New Jersey. And I had read a little bit about her, but didn't know enough about her and wanted to do a story on her. So I walked down, introduced myself, and told her I was with Gannett Newspapers. And our biggest newspaper is USA Today. So there's a chance that the story could be carried in USA Today. And I'd love to write about you. And she asked, um, well, how much do you pay? And I said, well, we're, uh, we're not allowed to, to pay for stories. I said, well, then I, I'm not going to grant you an interview. And I said, really? She said, well, I'm not giving anything else away. And she turned and her attention back toward the match. And I went back to the press box. And I, at the time, didn't know enough about her background to know why she rejected the interview request. But once I started researching her, I understood it a lot better because when she was the number one player in the world in 1957, she won Wimbledon for the first time and then won the U.S. Nationals at Forest Hills for the first time. She made no money. Tennis was an amateur sport when she was the best in the world at it. So yes, New York City once gave her a ticker tape parade up the Canyon of Heroes. That's usually reserved for astronauts returning from space or the Yankees winning the World Series. She is still the only black woman to receive a ticker tape parade up the Canyon of Heroes. But it happened in 1957, and most people don't even remember. <laughs> she made no money, and she retired from tennis after winning her second consecutive U.S. Nationals title in 1958 because she was broke. And she didn't get the opportunities that other tennis champions of that era were getting. Don Budge, for example, the first player to win the Grand Slam in 1938, had a lucrative endorsement deal with Wilson that supplemented his tennis. He never had to worry about paying bills or where uh, money was coming from. When Althea was the best in the world, she didn't make money. She then tried, well, she integrated two sports. She integrated the Ladies Professional Golf Association in 1963 and played there for 16 years. But golf was only her third best sport behind tennis and basketball. She didn't win a tournament during that period and made very little money in, in golf. So the more I researched her, the more I felt bad about how she was underappreciated, really, for, for most of her life. So when she looks at a young sports writer who wants to do a story about her, she's probably figuring, hey, other people have been able to sell their stories for money. Uh, if you can't pay me, then I really don't want to invest the time in, in granting you an interview. And it really brought it home for me. I devote a chapter to Althea in my book, Different Strokes, and I mentioned her periodically throughout the book because she really did a lot to make it possible for players today to be making the kind of money they make. I, I mentioned the book, for example, Sloan Stevens winning the U.S. Open in 2017 and getting a winner's check of $3.7 million. If Althea Gibson was making that kind of money for someone who won five major titles, two Wimbledons, two U.S. Nationals, one French, and six doubles titles, I mean, you would need a Brinks truck to put all the money in that Althea <laughs> Gibson should have made. Right. 11 major titles, world number one for two consecutive years, the first 
black woman, the first black player, period, a decade before Arthur Ashe to win major titles, yet she didn't make any money. And it's it's a sad story. And, you know, even last year, and when the U.S. Tennis Association unveiled a bust of Althea Gibson outside of the entrance to Arthur Ashe Stadium, it's ironic. Now, Arthur Ashe's name is on the biggest tennis stadium in the world, and that's fine. I'm, but just outside the entrance is a bust that says Althea Gibson and nothing else. It's not, there's no context. It doesn't tell you she won the U.S. Nationals twice. She won Wimbledon twice. She won the French Nationals. She grew up less than 10 miles from the site of the U.S. Open. None of that information is there. And mm-hmm. I can imagine kids looking at the bust and saying to their parents, who's Althea Gibson? Mm-hmm. And if the parent doesn't know, the parent can't tell the child. So even in death, Althea Gibson is, remains unsung. She remains a, a pioneer in, in search of fame. And it's, it's sad. Yeah. It is sad. And I mean, to be fair, when she was playing, as you mentioned, tennis was an amateur sport. So nobody was getting prize money at that time. It's not that she was the only one, but, but the sad truth is that there were other income streams for some of the other players, not all of them, because, you know, there were others that were, you know, died with no money. Um, yeah. as a result of the amateur status of the sport at the time. But but the fact that um, that her story isn't well-known and isn't well-talked about is really sad. And and I want to say I, I did a few Facebook Lives in front of her bus last year at the U.S. Oh, Open. And, um, and, and I'm guilty, too. I didn't know her full history, um, still don't know her full history other than what you're sharing with me right now. And I do plan to go back and do a little research once we're done with this call. But, mm-hmm. I, it, you know, Great. why is understanding history important for today's players? Put that in context for us. I, I think it's important for players to know that they stand on the shoulders of others. It's not just about them. And I give Richard Williams and Orsine Price credit for teaching Serena and Venus about Althea Gibson. I did an interview with Serena years ago, and she was telling me about how she wrote essays in school about Althea Gibson, how she would often have to change clothes in the car because she would not be allowed to use the dressing room that the white women use, how she would have to dine alone in the player's dining room if she was allowed in there at all. And these are things that obviously the parents teach you and you develop more of an appreciation for the history of the sport and how others came before you. It's not just all about you. And, you know, the term, if you don't know your history, we, we are doomed to repeat mistakes of the past. I think knowing history can really inspire people to want to be even better. I, I, I tend to use basketball as an analogy, and I don't want to go off course too much, but Michael Jordan influenced Kobe Bryant, who influenced LeBron James, who influences Zion Williamson today. That happens in all sports, really. If, if the young people grow up with someone they can readily identify with enough to idolize that person and find out about that person, and then it inspires you to want to be better in your sport. And there are young female players of color in particular, who idolize Serena and Venus. I get into that in the book as well, because just as Serena as a young girl wrote an essay about Althea Gibson, there was a third grade um, girl in the third grade in um, Florida named Naomi Osaka. She was given an assignment, write about the person you admire most. Naomi at age eight or nine wrote an essay about Serena Williams. And in the essay, she wrote, one day I want to beat Serena Williams and win the U.S. Open. She was in the third grade. Well, two years ago, it happened. When you, when you know your history and you have something to aspire to, I think it really can bring out the, the best in you, just gives you more focus, more a sense of, I want to be part of what my idol is part of. And it, it can really serve to keep you on, on the, the right track. What do you think is the impact of why we aren't seeing more black officials, more black tournament directors in our sport 
And what can we do to fix that? It's an interesting question. I write about that in the book because there have been two racial discrimination suits filed in the past two decades against the U.S. Tennis Association. Um, Most recently, Tony Nimmons, who was fired by the USTA in 2016, um, was on the fast track to perhaps becoming uh, the first African-American man to officiate a U.S. Open singles final. That still has never happened. We're in 2020. It's ridiculous. Uh, a little more background. Only wait, one- wait, 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 wait. There has never been a yes. black male chair umpire at a U.S. Open final? A U.S. Open singles final. Tony Nimmons was allowed to work uh, five U.S. Open doubles finals. But in singles, there has never been an African-American man to officiate a U.S. Open singles final. Only one African-American umpire has officiated a U.S. Open singles final. A woman named Sandy French in 1993 officiated the uh, 1993 women's final between Steffi Groff and Helena Sukova. That's it. 27 years ago. And wow. I get it. Yeah, I get into this at length in, in the book. This alone, I think, is it, it's, it's worthy of so much more attention. But I'll give you a, a, more of a, a condensed version of it. To, um, it starts with a gentleman named Cecil Hollins. His name is a lot like mine. But in the 90s, he was a tennis fan. He would go to the U.S. Open every year. He, he was an attorney, and he was intrigued. How do you become a tennis umpire? He said he was watching a Jimmy Connors match and enjoying the byplay between Connors and the umpire. And how can I do that? He found out from a USTA official that you need to be sponsored by the USTA or whatever country you're from. They, that tennis federation has to sponsor you. And you go to an umpire's school, and once you learn the basics, you get a white badge. Then you move up to a bronze badge, a silver badge, a gold badge. When you have a gold badge, you are qualified to officiate any tennis match anywhere in the world. Cecil Hollins became the first black man to earn a gold badge in tennis, but the USTA consistently bypassed him when it came to naming the umpire for the U.S. Open men's final and women's final. Twice he was the alternate umpire, and he asked why. He said, well, we we don't think you're ready. We don't think the time is right, which was nonsense. Right. You know, the alternate, but the guy who was named for the job, you know, did not slip in the shower and knock himself out, was not hit by a car, so he did the job. And Cecil Hollins just had to sit back and stew and just wonder, when am I going to get my chance? And when it became clear to him that he was not going to get the chance, that we're passing him over every year, and Sandy French, after she worked the 1993 final, came in the next year, got her assignments, and found that she was working the lines at matches. Wait a minute, she said. I I officiated the final last year. Why am I working the lines? And she was told by the head of umpires at the USTA, you didn't deserve to work that final last year. So Cecil Hollins and Sandy French filed a racial discrimination lawsuit against the USTA in the 1990s. The then district, the the attorney general of New York State, Elliot Spitzer, basically ruled to the USTA, told the USTA, you have to get your act together. You need to put together a program that does not systematically discriminate, but also provides more opportunities for blacks in positions such as tennis umpire. And the USDA put together a program and took Tony Nimmons, who was then a rising star among umpires. He had worked all of the four majors. He had a silver badge, one level removed from being able to officiate any tournament anywhere. The USDA took him and said, we're going to make you our head of diversity, which took him slightly off course as an umpire, but he was still doing umpiring. So he was spending more than 200 days a year traveling the world, officiating matches, and being in charge of diversity for the USTA. But he took the diversity job seriously. When a black woman working for the USTA, for example, came to him and said, somebody somebody put a noose on my desk. Well, he took that seriously. He looked into it, and he raised issues about racial discrimination within the ranks, and the people running the USTA really didn't want to hear it. And that got him in trouble. Once the USTA hired someone for a newly created position, supervisor of officials, 
that some that person became Tony's boss and that person prevented Tony from traveling. And when you can't travel, you can't build up the kind of let's say equity in the sport mm-hmm. to become a gold badge umpire. So Tony was stuck at the silver level. And I'll add one more element to it. Beginning in 2015, Katrina Adams, a former tennis pro, became the first black woman president of the USTA. That sounds great. It is a, an achievement. But people don't realize the president of the USTA does not run the day-to-day operation of the USTA. The president is paid on a per diem basis. The actual power in the USTA lies with the executive director, mm-hmm. who during Katrina's term was a white man named Gordon Smith. Gordon Smith didn't care about this issue of diversity and inclusion. And I make that distinction, diversity and inclusion, because naming Katrina Adams as president and chair, and for her first two years, also chief executive officer of the USTA sounds great, but she was not empowered to raise the issue of systemic discrimination against blacks who aspire to be umpires, blacks who aspire to positions outside of the playing realm, and yet they were being systematically discriminated against. Katrina was in the presiding over the meetings, obviously on the court handing out the trophies at the end of the U.S. Open finals, but she wasn't running the USTA. Mm-hmm. Not quite a figurehead, but she didn't. There was diversity without inclusion. When there's inclusion, Katrina would have felt empowered to say, we need to do something about this problem. Cecil Hollins and Sandy French sued us for a reason. After Sandy worked the 93 final, you buried her. And Cecil has a gold badge. He's qualified to work Wimbledon finals in doubles and he's working finals all over the world. How come he hasn't been given an opportunity to work a U.S. Open final? We need to change that. Katrina, based on my reporting, and I talked to a lot of people about that issue, she didn't feel empowered to raise the issue because she probably would have then been um, fired. Mm-hmm. Similar thing happened to the first female president of the Grammy Awards, com- uh, the Recording Arts Committee, by a woman named Deborah Dugan. Um, once she got in as the first female president of the Grammys, she started talking about sexual discrimination and how she herself had been sexually harassed as she moved up the ranks in the music industry. They said, oh, no, we don't want that. So the same board who appointed her president fired her. The same thing most likely would have happened to Katrina Adams had she brought up the issue, the question you raised about why there, haven't, there hasn't been more black progress off the court in tennis. And the uncomfortable reason, the inconvenient truth, is that the USTA, which is still run by white males, they don't believe in diversity and inclusion. So, they, they, they talk about it a lot. <laughs> they talk about it a lot. Yes, yeah. they will talk a good game. Tennis yeah. is for everyone, all of that, but they right. don't practice it. And that's why they have been sued twice by black umpires for racial discrimination and why when, when a black woman um, goes to Tony Nimmons and says, someone put a noose on my desk, it turned out to be a vendor. Well, you get rid of that vendor. You don't work with them anymore. Instead, the woman who complains is, is berated for it. And, and Tony, whose job is supposed to be to look into things like this and suggest what should be done about it, he's ignored and he's eventually fired. That's mm. the problem. The USTA right. is the USTA has been historically more of an impediment to black progress in tennis than an advocate, despite their tennis is for everyone campaigns. That, that's all superficial. That's really window dressing. Right. Well, and, you know, I, I need to point out that Katrina served two consecutive terms, um, which was unprecedented, but it was done when she was awarded that second term, it was done with really no explanation to the membership or the public as to why the USDA decided to award her a second term. And 
again, that had never been done before. Um, she I can fill in the blank. Okay. Well, let me just finish yeah, this. Thought okay, and then okay, I, then okay. I want you to, um, okay. before she took the job with USTA, she was very, very, very involved with the black community in New York and bringing tennis to the black community, especially kids in New York mm-hmm. and tried to continue that work as, you know, the head of USTA. Um, but at the same time, it was a tricky position to be in because I can tell you as a white person, I got very frustrated during Katrina's terms when, especially at the beginning, every social media post she made was her with a black player. And every tweet, every Instagram post, whatever, was about accomplishments of black players. And there was little to no mention of anyone else of any racial or cultural background. And mm. I, I understand that, you know, she was trying to utilize her platform to push something that was really important to her. And mm. I think is important to our sport overall. I think inclusion is, is huge and it's going to be either the, the thing that keeps us going or the thing that kills us, um, especially now. But, you know, it was, it was a frustrating time. And I, I contacted her privately on a couple different occasions and said, Hey, you know, I don't think this is okay. You're the head of the whole organization. You represent every member, not just the people that look like you. And, mm-hmm. and I, to be fair, I would call out anybody who did that, regardless of what color they are. I, I think yeah. if you represent an organization, you represent the entire organization. And yeah. so that was an interesting time. She also, though, um, brought Martin Blackman in as head yeah. of player development. And Martin has done a fantastic job. I get frustrated with him every now and then, and I'll shoot him <laughs> an email too. But okay. you know, I think overall he is doing a fantastic job. And the more, the longer he's there, and the more I'm involved now that I don't have a kid playing anymore, and I'm okay. you know just you know here as as a concerned party, um, I see how limited his power is as well. And it shouldn't be. He's the head of player development. He's the guy in charge of making sure we have more Americans in the second week of the U S open as Patrick McEnroe used to say about his, his job. Right. Right. So, so it's a, it's a weird dynamic. And I mean, I don't, I haven't looked back far enough, but has USTA ever had an executive director that wasn't a white male? No, no. <laughs> Gordon Gordon Smith was running the USTA while Katrina Adams had the the title right. of president, and I I really appreciate the background you gave me. Your talks with Katrina, and certainly as let's say as John Isner moves into the top ten, I mean acknowledge that photo, take, take a photo with him, praise that, you know, right? To only limit it to uh, of players of color is is certainly unfair, as, you know. White American players are doing great things. I mean, Melanie Ludan, her run to the quarterfinals several years ago. Yeah. You know, mention Isner, Jack Sock, and uh, Marty Fish, and just so many examples of white American players who were doing some very impressive things. And if she wasn't tweeting about that at the time, as she said she wasn't, then that's an inexcusable oversight. They're all American players that American tennis fans can can take pride in. But right. With Katrina, when the reason she was given that second term is that the USTA did that strategically to blunt criticism from the Tony Nimmons lawsuit. When Katrina was appointed in 2015, her term was supposed to end at the end of 2017, and that was it. She became the first person, as you say, to be appointed to a second term for strategic purposes. The USTA was then telling 
reporters, journalists such as myself, hey, we're not racist. Look who our president is. Mm -hmm. So Katrina's second term, she agreed to relinquish the title chief executive officer. From 2015 to 2017, she was president, chairwoman, chief executive officer. From 2017 to the end of 2019, president and chair. Handing out the trophies after the finals, doing the interviews, making the USTA look good because the face of American tennis is a black woman for the first time, but she didn't have the power. Gordon Smith had the power, and Gordon Smith did not care about diversity and inclusion in the USTA. Gordon retired at the end of 2019, so there may be some hope. Tennis, as we're talking, tennis has been shut down, but we will see if there are real substantive changes that include everybody from here, Gordon, from here on. Gordon's successor is another white male, though. It's, yeah. So, I, I mean, I'm just saying, he might be, uh, yeah. I, don't know, I don't know much about him. We haven't had a chance to really get to know him yet mm -hmm. because yeah. of what's going on with COVID-19. But right. just from an optics point of view, it's it's another white male. <laughs> yes. If there's a U.S. Open this year, and I suspect there won't be, but he was someone I really wanted to want to sit down and speak with just to find out his vision mm -hmm. for the organization and, and really ask him about past issues. Um, it's still on, Tony Nimmons' lawsuit is unresolved. Uh, I quote the USTA general counsel in my book who says, our policy when we are sued is to keep filing and filing until we deplete the resources of the person who has brought the suit against us. And either they will accept Yikes. a non-disclosure, either they will accept a non-disclosure agreement as Sandy French and Cecil Hollins did non-disclosure agreement and a sum of money to basically go away. Cecil Hollins, the first black American to become a gold badge umpire. He's now an administrative judge in Queens. He's not in tennis anymore. Sandy French continues to work, but she was demoted to a white badge, the lowest level. Wow. And she's, yeah, from, from working a U.S. Open final 27 years ago, she's working the lines today. There's a problem, a major problem. Okay, so I go back to my earlier question then, Cecil. Why should tennis parents care about this? I think it's behooves parents to know as much as possible about the sport that they want to get their sons and daughters into. I really think that's important to really go in there with, with eyes wide open. And I come back to uh, Richard Williams and Orsine Price. They intentionally kept Venus and Serena out of junior tennis. And basically both turned pro when they were 14, playing smaller events. And when the coaches that the Williams family brought in to work with them, deemed them ready. That's when you know Venus made her U.S. Open debut as a 17-year-old. Serena made her U.S. Open debut as a 16-year-old. But they largely avoided junior tennis and what the parents considered, you know, the cronyism, the the subtle racism. Let's say there are you know two black girls in the field of 32. Well, we'll just have them play each other in the first round. Things mm -hmm. like that. So uh, I just really think it's important if you're going into, regardless of the sport, tennis, soccer, baseball, whatever, know as much about the history of it as possible. So you go in there with your eyes wide open and you can prepare for any possible um, acts of unfairness that might arise. And um, I can tell you that um, Naomi Osaka's parents experienced the same thing. They have two um, two daughters, and I spoke with Leonard Francois about that during the 2018 uh, U.S. Open. Um, their decision to largely break away from the USTA and have Naomi and the older sister Mari represent Japan was partly for marketing purposes. Hey, if Naomi hits it big, which she has, then she's marketing gold as a Japanese athlete as opposed to you know American athlete who has done what Serena had already done, what Chris Everett had already done, what Tracy Austin had already done. But also because Leonard told me they did not feel that they were being supported enough by the USTA because they didn't have the, the two daughters didn't have great results right away. They tend to look for, you know, who's hot right away. 
Mm -hmm. a lot of those players fizzle out. Uh, You know, who's going to be the next John McEnroe? Who's going to be the next Donald Young? They were well. Let's let's talk about Donald Young a second. You just read my mind because I was (laughs) talking. I'm thinking, (laughs) all right, we get we need to touch on Donald Young a little bit because he was touted as the next great thing after winning, you know, our junior national championship and Mm -hmm. showing himself to be, you know, a a contender to be taken seriously. Um, What happened there? And and we hear lots of, you know, uh, I don't know. I don't know what the right word is, but but calls of racism from his camp. I mean, we have heard that over the years. Is there something to that? And what does it mean moving forward? And 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 what can we what do we do about it? It's it's very interesting because I mean at, at 15 Nike was throwing money at him. He was represented by IMG. He was being compared to John McEnroe because there here are two left-handers with great hands, touch at the net, not a lot of power, but high tennis IQs. And because of what McEnroe accomplished, many people thought Donald Young would accomplish the same thing. But I think in his case, it's one thing to turn pro as a 15-year-old girl, you know, but to turn pro as a 15-year-old boy and be competing against men, it was too much way too soon for Donald Young. Um, from I a know, physical standpoint? From, yes, a, yes. From okay. A, from, a phys- from a physical standpoint. Okay. I remember uh, covering the Miami tournament in 2006 when Donald Young was 16. He played an Argentinian journeyman named Carlos Baroque in the first round. Baroque beat him 6-love, six 6-love, six easily. Man against boy. Donald Young had no business being in the Miami Open, but he was being pushed by Nike and IMG and the other major sponsors. Put him out there. He's going to be the next McEnroe. That had much more to do with Donald Young not becoming a superstar than racism because he was getting wild cards. He was getting the opportunity to do things that he wasn't physically ready to do. And in retrospect, I wish his parents had said, hey, had said, hey hold on. Hold, she, he's not ready for this yet. You know, we'll take your endorsement deal, but not to the point where you're putting him in professional tournaments against grown men. And as a postscript, Burloke blew Young off, hit Young off the court, six love, six love in the first round match that I covered. In the second round, Burloke played James Blake and Burloke lost six love, six love. Two men, but, you know, Blake was much better. Young had no business being in tournaments like Indian Wells and Miami as a 15 and 16 year old he's to young's credit he's still around uh he managed to get his singles ranking into the top 50 a couple of years ago happened to get into a french open men's doubles final a couple of years ago he's still capable of playing outstanding tennis but he didn't develop physically the way i'm sure he would have wanted to the the term we use in sports is he didn't grow into his body if you look at donald young he's got size 13 feet he didn't get stronger physically. So the players he used to beat on sheer tennis ability and his tennis IQ in the juniors started hitting him off the court. He, you know, he would not have lost to a Carlos Baroque in the juniors. But once they met in a professional tournament, it was man against boy. And that is really the cautionary tale. You mentioned what should parents know. I think all tennis parents should really look at the the section of my book on Donald Young and say, is this too much too soon? And I really tend to apply that only to boys because, you know, we've seen, you know, we're seeing Coco Goff now at 16. Mm -hmm. Uh, Clearly she can play. We saw, um, if you go back far enough, Pam Shriver made a U.S. Open final at 16, then had a Hall of Fame career. Tracy Austin was out there in the U.S. Open at 14, Chris Everett at 16, Jennifer Capriati at 13, then went on to Hall of Fame careers because girls develop at a, a different rate. Uh, a, a 15-year-old girl with talent can beat a grown woman in tennis. A 15-year-old boy with talent is not going to beat a grown man. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen. Just, I mean, it's just too vast a difference in the physical strength. That exactly. I, I mean, one of the most remarkable accomplishments I've seen in tennis 
is, you know, Michael Chang winning the French Open at 17. I don't believe we'll ever see a 17-year-old boy win a major title again. I honestly don't. Mm-hmm. It's amazing that he did that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, You know, I keep coming back to you know, why should tennis parents care about all of this and, and be interested in reading your book, Different Strokes? Um, you know, what application does it have for today's junior players, you know, with dreams of playing collegiate tennis and, you know, maybe professional tennis? And I, I think, you know, the takeaway is that, as you mentioned early on in this conversation, Cecil, you have to know the history. You have to know who came before you and paved the way for the opportunities that you now have in order to have an appreciation for that and in order to keep things in perspective. And I think especially in an individual sport such as tennis, mm-hmm. you know, we tend to be, we the players, we the parents tend to be so self-focused mm-hmm. And, yeah. and I don't want to say self-centered because I don't mean it in a way of being, you know, removed or aloof, but, but we're so focused on what this one person is accomplishing. And oftentimes we lose that perspective of, you know, I am part of something bigger than myself. <laughs> I am, that's, that's right. <laughs> I'm part of the history yeah. of this sport. I'm part of every player that came before me. And, yeah. you know, pave the way for me to have the opportunities mm-hmm. in the black community. Do you feel like people like Althea Gibson, Arthur Ash, James Blake, um, Serena and Venus, Naomi, Madison Keys, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. Coco Goff are those touch points for today's players or today's you know, potential players who for whatever oh, yeah. reason just aren't being embraced or invited in or made to feel welcome? Well, I, I definitely hear it from the young players I've had a chance to speak to. I have not done a one-on-one interview with Coco Goff, but I have with Whitney Osigwe, who's a promising young player who hasn't broken through yet on Coco's level, but someone who I think can be a, a future uh, champion. And when I talk to them, they know about all those names. Um, they know more about a Sloan Stevens or Madison Keys and Naomi Osaka because they're closer to them in age. But they started playing. They'll tell you they started playing because of the Williams sisters. Uh, Sasha Vickery told me she you know, wore her hair like Venus and Serena in the early days with the beads and the braids because of what she saw. Madison Keys was watching Wimbledon with her parents and saw Venus playing and said, oh, I want to do that. I want to wear that white dress. You know, the, the major cultural impact is why you see so many young um, female players of color wanting to do what the Williams sisters are doing. Whether they reach that level or not, they are tennis fans because of the Williams sisters. Tennis is on their radar because of the Williams sisters. They don't necessarily know who Althea Gibson is, but that's a failing of many people, I'll say, including the USTA, to not tell her story well enough, but they certainly know Venus and Serena. And those two sisters are going to have a lasting impact on encouraging generations, future generations of uh, of girls and mm-hmm. enough boys, too, to want to play the sport. But we had we had James Blake, we have Donald Young, we you know, we've had Gail Monfils from France. And, you know, why yeah. why aren't we seeing the same impact as we're maybe seeing the Williams sisters have? It helps to see people winning championships, really. I mean, Serena is the greatest female player in the history of the sport. Uh, Venus, obviously Hall of Fame credentials as well. As talented as Blake was in his 14-year career, he never won a major title. Uh, Monfils has yet to win a major title. Sanga, Joe Wilford Sanga has yet to win mm-hmm. a major title. Madison Keys, not yet. Um, hasn't won, she hasn't won a major title. I know from you know, being around sports for decades, young people really gravitate toward the, the champions. 
and Serena is the biggest of all of all champions. Um, Google doesn't know that, by the way. Them, <laughs> if you <laughs> if you put in the search engine in in, a, in Google, Yahoo, or Bing, but if you put in the search engine most major tennis titles in the Open era, the answer they give you is Roger Federer. Now that is. Yeah, sexist. It's, 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, there's sexism in the algorithm. I, I, I've written to them about this. Um, why is the men's record always the default record with these search engines? So, you know, here's Serena with her 23 majors and, you know, some kid doing an essay the way Naomi Osaka did as a third grade girl. Oh, let me read about, let me put this in there. They're giving you the wrong information, but... Did you get, get a response? Did you get a response from the search engine? I have yet Just to get curious. a response. I have yet to get a response from Google. It's like, like you know, if you're writing to Facebook, it should get go to Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. But who does it? Sergey Brin and Larry Gage, who founded Google, are no longer involved. So I don't know who's. I send it to you know contact us, right. and I hope to get a response. <laughs> but I never get a response. They need to get the sexism out of their algorithm. Because, I mean, that is the sort of thing that can be discouraged. It's discouraging to me as an adult. I can imagine how discouraging it would be to a young girl who wants to see Serena represented the way she should be represented. As great as she is, she's still underrated. People don't talk about her the same way they'll talk about a Tiger Woods and his golf accomplishments. Mm-hmm. But let's let's talk about because, I mean, we can't have a discussion about Serena without touching on some of the controversy she's been involved yeah. in. And, you know, I you were at her final with Naomi. Um, I was there for part of that. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I what happened that day and why? I mean, Naomi is a woman of color as well. Yeah. So, you know, it's not like Serena was playing, you know, I, I don't know. But she wasn't playing name uh, of Carolina player. Pliskova. She wasn't playing right. Petra Kvitova. <laughs> right, right. Um, she was playing a woman also of color. So, yeah. to, so was this a racial thing? Was this a female thing? What was going on? So many things went wrong that day. I'll start with the USTA's decision to have Carlos Ramos work the match. He is an overly officious umpire who a lot of players don't like. Andy Murray doesn't care for him. Rafael Nadal doesn't care for him. Um, He was the wrong choice to officiate that match because, as we both know, as the listeners know, Serena is a very emotional player. She brings a lot of fire and passion to the court. Sometimes she steps over the line, and that day she stepped over the line. Remember, the first code violation Ramos gave her was because her coach, Patrick Marataglu, was giving illegal hand signals. And obviously Serena has been around long enough to know when the coach does it, the player is penalized. Mm-hmm. And Serena seemed to blank space out on that. Well, she yeah, Not she real. seems surprised. Yeah, she <laughs> Which, seemed, yeah, she seemed yeah. surprised that she was given a cold violation. Well, right. that's what you know. That's the rule. <laughs> that's the rule. That's the rule. The second one, she smashed her racket after Naomi broke serve to cut the deficit to three two in the second set. Now, when you smash your racket, obviously that's a cold violation. Serena seemed to think, oh, that's my first. No, it was her second. And the rules state clearly: your second cold violation means you lose a point. And mm-hmm. that's when Serena went off on, you stole a point from me. Well, no, right. he didn't. I, I think it was a combination. You remember how, also, the first set was all about tennis. There was no controversy in that match until the second set. Well, remember in the first set, Naomi smoked her 6-2. I'm sure that was shocking to Serena. Yeah. This is a U.S. Open final. Naomi Osaka is playing in a major final for the first time against her idol, and she blitzed her. So that's on Serena's mind. Oh, my God, I just lost the first set of a U.S. Open final 6-2. It sounded like a morgue at Arthur Ashe Stadium during the the changeover. And then in the second set, Serena jumps out to a 3-1 lead. But when Naomi breaks back, Serena sort of lost it. That's when she smashed the racket. And at every changeover after that, Serena got into it with Carlos Ramos. We could hear what Serena was saying, but Ramos would 
turn away from the microphone, so we couldn't hear what he was saying. But at one point, I'm sure he said something that triggered Serena, and I'm not blaming him because I didn't hear what he said. But Serena said back to him, no, you're the liar, and you're a thief too. And that's when Ramos called her for verbal abuse and took a game away from her. And it went from 4-3 Osaka to 5-3 Osaka, and the place went crazy. Yep. And Naomi being inexperienced, playing in her first major final, remember she thought the crowd was booing her. Yeah. They were booing Ramos, overly officious Ramos, who could have, he could have chosen to let the illegal hand signals go. He didn't. He followed the letter of the law. The next day in the men's final, um, Novak Djokovic was taking too long to serve. He went beyond 20 seconds. And Allison Hughes, a British woman, was the umpire. She let it slide. Different umpires handle these things differently. Mm -hmm. I surmise in the book that if Allison Hughes had been assigned to work the women's final, given the way she officiates matches, she probably would not have called Patrick Maratoglou for the legal hand signals. That doesn't make it right. Just a difference in styles. And maybe she would have been able to diffuse the situation by explaining to Serena, one more outburst and I'm going to penalize you a game. Did Ramos have to say that to her? No. But if he had said it to her, maybe it would have clicked within Serena's brain. Hey, I need to make this all about tennis now. I'm going to just ignore the umpire and play. Instead, she carried on this steady dialogue, mostly one way. You took a point from me. You're a thief. Until Ramos felt like I have no recourse but to penalize her again. Yeah, that's unprecedented in a major final. Serena crossed the line. Well, and then we, you know, we saw the opposite type of officiating when Moliani is penalized for getting out of his chair and trying to calm <laughs> Nick Kyrgios down and saying, look, Nick, get your act together or I'm going to have to start imposing penalties here, you know? Yeah. And, and then Mo's banned from officiating. So, Exactly. I mean, you look at the these officials are in. I feel like they're in a no win situation because they get they need a union. Well, they there needs to be some consistency. Really, is what mm-hmm. needs to happen, and and it just isn't there. I mean, we see that, you know, as young as the twelve and unders, um, you oh, know, <laughs> where officials are imposing rules differently. Some, you know, embrace the idea of warning players and right. you know before they start imposing penalties others go straight penalty and so i, I think that's a big yeah. issue but it, yeah but getting back to to this particular match and and serena's this wasn't the first time this had happened to serena we saw the same thing when she played kim Kleisters and yeah that's right you know with the foot faults and mm-hmm. you know in that case it was the line judge not the chair that she yeah. took her ire out on. Um, so yeah. how does that impact her legacy? I, a lot of people don't like her for that reason. I, I get it. They t- point to matches like the 2009 uh, semifinal against Kleisters or the final against uh, Samantha Stoser, where she basically called a female umpire working that match. You're ugly inside. You're a hater. I mean, there are people who remember all these incidents and say, oh, I don't like the way Serena comports herself on court. There are others who say she is the most intense, fiery competitor. I love her fire. I think so many people, you heard it in the reaction of the crowd at Ash Stadium in 2018, booing the umpire, cheering Serena on, people yelling in a sense, they're cheating you, Serena, you're still the best, bringing sort of an element of other sports to tennis. Some people like that. Some people don't. I think it's all part of her legacy, the greatness on court and the intensity that sometimes compels her to cross the line and go too far. I mean, smashing rackets. Um, Some people don't like the yelling, come on. I write about in the book um, how Sloan Stevens was critical of Serena. The first time they played each other in an Australian Open tune-up and Serena yelled, come on, and Sloan said after the match, she's just trying to intimidate people. It's, it's, it's terrible. I don't like it. And that there's still some friction between those two to this day. Some, you know, Serena is 
not for everyone <laughs> yeah. in terms of how she comports herself on court. There's no denying her brilliance as a player. I can't tell you, Lisa, how many people say to me, I like Venus better because Venus doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. So many people say that to me. Well, yeah. And, you know, <laughs> from as a parent, I mean, who do you want your child to emulate? You know, right. From, right. from a tennis perspective, of course, you want your child to have the success of a Serena, but mm-hmm. from a, a human perspective, <laughs> and a, <laughs> you know, it's hard to say you would want to raise a child that behaved like that all the time. It's embarrassing. I mean, I had a kid who lost his temper on court. It's embarrassing as the parent, but mm. you know, it's, it's one of those things that in my mind, it doesn't, it shouldn't undermine her legacy as someone who has and is continuing to change the face of tennis and who has and is continuing to make tennis available to a population that might not have seen it as an option before Serena and Venus came on the scene, regardless of, regardless of what Althea did, regardless of what Arthur Ashe did, regardless of, you know, what other players of color have accomplished, Serena and Venus have opened tennis to a a segment of the population that felt locked out. Um, Even, even in light of efforts by the various governing bodies to say, or, kind of, sort of act like they're trying to include <laughs> other uh-huh. people. Um, I, I, I don't think anybody can claim to have had the impact that these two women have had and are continuing to have. And I suspect that's the reason you wrote different strokes, Serena that's Venus exactly. and Unfinished Black Tennis Revolution. So yes. given that we're coming to the end of our hour, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to bring this full circle. Um, okay. Can you please share with our readers how they can get your book and how they can get more information on the topics that we've been discussing today? Well, thank you for that, Lisa. At a time when bookstores are closed and libraries are closed and schools are closed, at least um, people can order the book online. And I'm referring people to a website, bookshop.org. It's a consortium of independent booksellers. We have to do what we can to keep small businesses alive at this critical time, but especially um, bookstores, independent bookstores. People can go on that website and order the book. The publisher is University of Nebraska Press. People can go on that website, unl.edu, and go to the um, section where they can order the book directly from the publisher. That's because at this time, you can get it on Amazon too, but Amazon has said publicly that they don't consider books a high priority at this time. They, <laughs> they've put, um, I guess, toilet paper and hand sanitizers above books. <laughs> so I, I tell people. <laughs> I mean, you know, to be fair. <laughs> but that said, let me, we will have the links that Cecil just mentioned in the show notes on parentingaces.com or wherever you consume our podcast. Um, if you go to the show notes, you'll find those links so that you can order the book directly. And Cecil, we will honor your request to do it through the consortium website um, and support these smaller booksellers. I think that that's the least we can do right now is to try and help these small businesses survive in a crazy time. Yes. Thank you so much, Lisa. I appreciate that. And they'll they'll appreciate it too. I I wish I could do events at various places. I'm looking into the possibility of virtual book events. (laughs) I, I think those have to exist um, or are coming soon because if somebody like me can do virtual conversations, <laughs> surely the <laughs> can figure it out. But I, I want to just say to you, Cecil, on a personal note, I know you are based in New York and yeah. where you are is suffering horribly with COVID-19 right now. So I wish you and your loved ones and your community uh health and safety as we continue to fight this horrible pandemic. And, you know, I hope that you come out of this unscathed. So stay safe Thank up you there. So much. Thank you so much, Lisa. I look forward to seeing you at a tennis event. If there's a U.S. Open next 
next year. I don't know if there'll be one this year, but I look forward to seeing you at a tennis event, meeting you in person. Thank you so much. Thank you, Cecil. And to my audience, thank you so much for tuning in and stay safe, stay well, wash your hands, wear your face masks, and we'll catch you next time on Parenting Aces. I'm Lisa Stone, and you've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast. For tennis parents, by a tennis parent. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us and write a review on iTunes. For more information on navigating the junior and college tennis journey, please visit us online at ParentingAces.com. Thanks for tuning in and sharing us with your tennis community.